0: Um, when was the Queen's birthday? I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Was it maybe the day before? And she's 90. And I don't know if I'm a royalist, but I do love the Queen. I think she's great. I want you to imagine just for one second what you'd do if I were to tell you that in a surprise coup, the leaders of Escape have managed to encourage the Queen to celebrate her birthday at Escape, And she's currently at the top of the ski slope about to zoom down. But after she's finished on the ski slope, she's going to come here and meet us, I wonder how we'd prepare to meet royalty. I wonder what we'd do. I, I, I think very clearly. I know definitely that, that some people would immediately think, well, the carpet's filthy. And I can't remember if I've changed the toilet rolls. And and I haven't properly done my hair. I mean, my hair looks OK, but normally, my hair looks better than this. And, I should, and there'd be people, actually, who would just think, I'm going to go home right now, and then I'm going to zoom back. There'd be people thinking, I need to charge my phone up in preparation for the Queen. And there would be other people thinking, I need to be assertive here. I need to think of something intelligent because this is my opportunity to meet the Queen. What would we do? Because it's important, isn't it? John the Baptist gets this job of introducing royalty. I don't know if you think of him like that. He plays the role of forerunner. We, uh, we read the passage in the Bible that, descri- that describes his occupation as a voice of one... Calling in the wilderness. It says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. These are very grand words. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. What John the Baptist was doing was fulfilling um, an ancient occupation. I don't know if you're familiar with the role of a forerunner, but that was somebody's job to be a forerunner. So some ancient city would get wind of the fact that there was a king coming or a king passing by or something like this, and they would send out a forerunner to prepare the way. So we think it's quite a, a grand job. This this, this um, description is, is quite grand, but a forerunner would really just go out and... Clear the path. So the cities were often on hills and the paths would would need cleared and preparations would need made for the forerunner to would need made for the king to come. So the forerunner would go out with his shovel and he would stand there and he would survey the scene and he would think, I need to prepare this road so that the king can come. I need to make a path straight for him so that he can come. Because you don't want the king to be making his way to the city. And get halfway up the road and he get his, the horse gets his foot, st- I don't know how kings arrived, I think probably sometimes they came on horses and the king gets his foot stuck and all the people are ready at the walls and yet the king's somewhere off a hundred yards in the distance and all the people are there and the king's like, well I can't come, my, my foot's got stuck. So you would send out a forerunner, you would send out somebody to prepare the way and he'd go out first and then eventually his team had come out with him and they would join in and they would make a path straight. So we get this description of, of this idea that we make paths straight, we lay valleys up high, and we, get, we, bow, we knock down mountains. But actually, the, the job is, doesn't sound quite as grand as that when we, when we think about the role of a forerunner. He's just got to make sure that the king gets there and prepare the way for the king, the job of a forerunner. And that's how we come to understand John the Baptist, in that he's somebody who is a forerunner. He's, he's going out, knowing that the king's coming. He knows that the king's coming and we're talking about Jesus here and we talk about the king. He knows that the king's coming and he's going out before him and he's surveying the land and he's saying I'm going to try to make it so that the king can come. So that's the question I want you to have in the back of your mind. What does John the Baptist have to do so that the king can come? Because introductions to royalty are important things, aren't they? Obama I think, I think, is Obama still here? Nod your heads if Obama is still here. I think Obama is still with us, isn't he? Can you imagine if Obama rocked up on an easyjet flight? And can you imagine him waiting outside Heathrow Airport looking for his lost luggage and hanging around with a stag weekend from Bristol or something like that and then flagging a lift to Buckingham Palace? That just wouldn't happen, would it? We roll out the red carpet. We give him every welcome that we can think of. We give him the finest Hotels are the grandest residence, We pour the finest champagne down his mouth. We keep whispering about the importance of the special relationship. You won't be able to turn on your television tonight and watch the news without some BBC broadcaster talking about the special relationship. Because it's important, isn't it? How we welcome royalty. We do it ourselves in our own homes. We welcome people into our little kingdoms. You might be like me and have had a conversation that goes something like this. It's Ralph and Sue coming around, Ralph and Sue. Ralph's got a lot of nasal hair, don't look at it. And the toilet needs cleaning and there's a bunch of laundry there and there's a bunch of stuff we've got to do to prepare for these people to come. And it's about more than just the introduction, isn't it? Because these introductions, at every level of society, we try and prepare the ground for people that are important to us. Because it reflects more than just that moment. Obama's visit this week is about more than just these couple of days. We're pouring champagne down his mouth and whispering kind things in his ear because we want his investment. It speaks something of the relationship that already exists and the relationship that will exist in the future, these introductions. So what has John the Baptist got to prepare the way for? What has he got to straighten out? What are the valleys that need filled in? What are the mountains that need knocked down low? Let's read through some of the verses again and see if you can spot what John the Baptist is up against. Verse 7, I don't know if you could pop that up on the screen. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one that has none. Anyone who has food, excuse me, should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't (laughs) exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content.'" With your pay, what is the kind of maintenance that John's got to carry out? What's the highway that needs repaired? There's no, there's no hills outside Jerusalem that he's got his eye on fixing up. This is people, that is the problem. The king can't come, because the people aren't ready. And the king is coming. And John the Baptist sees the people, and he is just blown away by the apathy, and the emptiness that he meets. And he says, the king can't come. When the people are like this, and what I guess what he sees is the fact that this 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 relationship that these people have had with God goes back thousands of years, and God has protected them and kept them and loved them and prospered them, and for them now, just to practice their religion with a kind of empty ritual, with just this, what he's saying is you've just you just you're just having this loose claim to faith through your links with Abraham. This is how you're going about it. And John, John, as he prepares the way, sees this apathy. And he says, the king can't come into this. I've got to prepare these people for the king coming. I don't know if you could pop the first slide up, Amy. There is an emptiness amongst the people. And John says, if the king's going to come, I need to challenge this. And he does it with two pictures. And there are pictures that we miss because we're reading it. Two thousand years and five or six thousand miles away, and later, and, and and we would flick through them. But if you're if you're a keen Jew in these times, then these would hit you. This would be like a short movie that would just that you see on Channel Four every now and again that just stays with you for a long time. These are two strong pictures. The first one is this of baptism, and we might miss the significance of baptism. But to a, if if you are a Jew, and there's a guy John the Baptist stood there at the Jordan and saying to you. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. You would be really offended. You've spent your whole life ritually cleaning yourself. For somebody to turn around and say to you, you're not ready for the king because you're too dirty is a real offense. And yet that is the picture that John the Baptist puts before these Jewish people. You need to be baptized. This baptism was part of the passage for a Gentile, a pagan, me and you, to become a Jew. So when he tells Jews that they're going to have to be baptized, then this is a strong message and a big picture for them to get their heads around. And he also uses the picture of a tree. He says, "You're, you're claiming your family roots. You're saying you have righteousness because you're part of the tree. You're part of the family tree. Your roots are in Abraham. And what John sort of says is, I'm looking at the tree, and I don't see any fruit. I know that you're telling me that you're part of the tree and that's your claim. You're part of the tree and that means you're righteous. And John says, we're looking at the tree right now. We're stood there with the axe ready to chop it down because there's no fruit. It's no good anymore just to say that my roots are in Abraham. You're a fruit tree. There should be fruit there. Uh, My little girl, Miriam, and my other kids, Ethan and Kira, we have what we call an adventure walk that we go on every now and again. And uh, it's really just because I'm a tight dad and I'm not always going to spend my money. So we jump over the stream at the bottom of our, of our street and we go off into what we call the forest and the woods and it's really just a ginnel with a few trees and I'll tell stories or lies about the fact that there are bears in the woods and I'm trying to generate a bit of excitement amongst the kids because we're not off to Alton Towers, we're not even off to the pictures, we're off to the ginnel at the bottom of our street and I'll tell stories about berries and I'll say that if you eat these berries... This is a yellow berry. Then your leg will turn blue and fall off. And Miriam looks at me like, yeah, whatever. Ethan's playing at it and Kira just goes, oh, better not eat this berry then. And I'll tell more and more tall story. And I'll tell tall story after tall story after tall story. But at the end of this ginnel, there's an apple tree. And I think I just about wound my kids up to the, to the point of no return. And Miriam said, Dad, we can eat that tree, can't we? Because it's an apple tree. She said something really simple. And yet it was really quite... Profound. You see, it was a tree that produced fruit. I couldn't kid her on, I couldn't lie about it. I couldn't fabricate a truth. It was a tree that produced fruit, and John here says, "Look, you're a fruit tree. There's no fruit on this tree. There's no evidence that you've been changed." And he finds this apathy, and John challenges it, and he says, "We need, we need you to repent. And that's what he's calling him to. And repentance is change." Repentance is showing evidence of change and fruit in your life. We know this, don't we? When we tell our kids to say sorry, I've seen this a few times at Tots on Tuesday morning. It's really It happens, in fact, it happens all the time at Tots. Mums will say, and say sorry. Just say sorry. And then they will almost see the inadequacy of saying sorry. They will almost see the inadequacy of an apology. And we do this as well with our own children. And we say, no, act like it then. So almost in the just saying sorry has a sort of inefficiency, insufficiency. And we say, no, you need to act like it. And we challenge our kids, if you're sorry, act like it. And this is what John's saying. A sorry people, people who, who understand themselves in light of God, are a repentant people, and repentance looks like something. And this is a picture that the New Testament builds upon. If you've got... Um, if you would engage with us and study Luke's gospel, I'd challenge you to read through the accounts of when Jesus meets different people and he calls them to repentance. And I want you to study and look at, and I realize this sounds like I'm giving you homework here, but it's a good study to do. I want you to study and look at how these people go about repentance. And they all go away, not just saying sorry, but changing. Repentance, I think if you were to sort of unpick the word, it's like somebody who's walking this way And it's almost like you're saying, sorry, kick somebody in the teeth. Sorry, kick somebody in the teeth. That's not repentance. Just carrying on the same way and saying sorry is not repentance. Repentance is walking this way, getting so far down the road, saying sorry, and turning around and walking back in the other direction. That's the picture of repentance in the New Testament. It's what the story of Zacchaeus, because we all know the story of Zacchaeus. He says, yeah, I'm sorry. I know that I've done wrong things. And Jesus doesn't say anything at that point. I'm sorry, I know that I've done wrong things. And then he says, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm going to give back. And I can't remember the proportions of what he gives back. I'm going to give back half of everything that I own to the to people I've wronged. And then if, any, if I've wronged anybody else, I'm going to give them more and more. It looks like something. It doesn't just mean saying sorry. It means that you turn around, walk the other way. And John is challenging these people as he prepares the way for the king. He says to them, you need to turn around. You need to walk the other way. There needs to be evidence of this change in your life. As I looked through this and as, as this sort of stuck around in my head this, this week, um, and I thought about the nation of Israel that John knew that he had to challenge, and, and he challenged them because of the emptiness that he saw in their, in their religious practice, I kind of mourned a little bit our own country. And there's some great things about our country. I love the Queen, and I do love our country. I will enjoy St. George's Day, and I'm British and proud and all the rest of it. And yet, in a similar way to the Jewish people, not the same way, but in a similar way, we've had a glimpse of the truth of Christ in our leadership and amongst our people. And we have this loose claim that we say we're a Christian country. And yet, some of our practice doesn't represent that. And... As his church, would we be like John? Would we be offended by the emptiness of our country? Does it bother us? Or do we sleep very easily, actually, on a night and think, yeah, we're going to the dogs. We're losing our faith as a country, but what are we are going to do? What's John's example? It should be a challenge to us. And as, as, I, as I condemned our government and our national practice, I was forced to look at my own life and make a cold assessment of me. And I've thought, yep, maybe if you had an app that could analyze how much of my Christianity was duty-bound and how much of it was joyful, I don't know what the percentages would be. I can do Christianity pretty well. I've been attending church for a long time. I've been to all the services. I can do all the talk. I can come across like as good a Christian as you would want. But if I look back and make an honest reflection, some of it's just been duty. It's been ritual and it's been empty. And John would bluntly hammer me over the head and say, I thought you believed in the living God. I thought you believed in the message of Jesus. I thought you'd understand that he died for you. And you just rock up at church every now and again and pray. John would challenge us, I think, on a personal level, that our faith should be more than just dutiful. It should be joyful. so that when we eat our dinners and we give thanks for our food, it's not just something that we do ritually. Do you do that when you give thanks for, for your food? I don't know if that's part of your practice in your house, but sometimes, in fact, often because I'm starving, we've given thanks. I've not really realized that it's happened, and I'm eating, I'm halfway through my meal before I'm thinking, am I thankful for this at all? I want, I think this challenge that John puts us before us is that It's not just a duty. There should be a joy in it. And when we eat our food, we should have this genuine, yeah, I'm thankful. I'm thankful, actually. I'm not just saying grace. This is not just ritual. I'm going to actually stop and be thankful. That when we pray, often, again, um, we can get into habits with prayer, which can be good habits, but sometimes we we can finish praying and we've not really considered sometimes what we've said. And I think it's a great challenge for us to think about. We pray not just because we should pray, And it's something that Christians do. But we pray because we want to talk to God. That is our motivation. It's not out of a sense of duty Yep, I should really pray. Yeah, that's another day on the planet. I should pray before I go to sleep. It should be Yeah, I'm in desperate need of communication with the God who changes the whole world. So I'm going to talk to him. And we go to church, not just because we go to church, because our dads went to church, and we've always been to church, and there's some nice warm sensation from going to church, but we actually go to church because we think, I'm not sure I can live another day on this planet if I'm not around God's people. I'm not sure I can live another day on this planet if I don't hear from God and he does not speak into my life. And so we it's end, as far as we can, this duty-bound Christianity that will slip in and out of our lives as much as we can, and we say to ourselves, no, this is going to be a fruitful response to the truth about Jesus Christ. don't know if you could pop the next slide on, Amy. And the people hear all this, these two pictures about the tree and about baptism, and they ask a great question. They say, what should we do now? What should should we do then? What should it look like? And I really love the way that John deals with this. He gives them a really simple answer. If you know anything about Jewish culture, they love a debate. Maybe it's because... um, they've got a lot of sunshine and they've got a nice outdoor life culture and, and they can stand outside and gas all day and they love nothing more than to talk about Levitical law and have a deep big debate and I love that John's response is really simple. When, when they say to him, what should we do then? I think that what they're saying is, let's have a debate about this, let's dig into Leviticus and let's talk this through and John gives them a really simple answer like a cutting answer and it'll cut them and it should cut us. He just says, yeah if you've got two jumpers give one away and if you've got more food than you need give some food away it doesn't go into the Levitical laws just gives them this blunt challenge that none of us and none of them can get past it's compassion have some compassion as John prepares the way for the king to come he finds a people who are compassionless in some respects and he challenges that and he says look this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what his values look like. They are full of compassion. John makes it simple, and we make it hard, don't we? We should be compassionate. And the next two characters, I don't know if you could put the text back up, that would be grand. The next two characters that we come across, I think, really reveal to us the kind of how sin can impact our everyday lives, because it should be very simple. John's given us a simple answer and yet that's not enough. The taxman says, what should I do? And what he's kind of saying is, the Romans are ripping us off. They're ripping us all off and everybody hates me anyway because I'm a taxman. I can't really win. So what's the point? I'm on a loser no matter what I do. So I've got to try and make a little bit of money along the way. So even though it's a really simple statement that John makes, this tax man comes and says, yeah, you don't know what it's like for me. It's actually different for me. I'm a tax man. Nobody likes me. I may as well make a few bob while I'm at it. The soldier says a similar thing. He's saying, I don't get paid enough. And actually, when you're a soldier, you've got to be horrible. You've got to be ruthless, or you don't get any answers out of anybody. What they're both saying is, the way of the world won't allow me just to give my tunic away. That's not the way that everybody else operates, so I'm not going to operate that way. This is what sin does, isn't it? It kind of moves the moral goal, goalposts. It's a really easy thing that John gives them to do. Give something away. And what we say is, oh, you don't know about my life. We, we ain't going got a holiday this year, and my life's actually a bit more difficult than somebody else's life. John levels the playing field out for him. We move the goalposts. Sin moves the goalpost. We occupy the role of victim. We might even choose the role of victim. We say, Yeah, it's different for me. I can't just do that. And we move the goalpost. And John speaks into this mindset. And he says, To get ready to meet the king, to welcome in his values, is not to think like you start your start off moral point is where everybody else's is. Let's not let the let's not let this sinful world move our starting point somewhere else that we're not comfortable with. Your value should start with me. If I tell you just to give away an extra bit of of the stuff that you have, then you should do that. Let's hear what God says about compassion psalm one hundred and forty six verse seven. This is what David says about God. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. I think these texts pull us back into line with God's values. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to be distracted by sin and choose our moral compass and make it our own moral compass. And God would shift us back, I think. My favorite missionary... And you probably shouldn't have a favorite missionary. It probably shouldn't be something that you do. But it's William Carey. Um, I think it's probably because he worked as a weaver, which is what I used to do. Although he learned Greek while he was a weaver. And I just learned how to read a newspaper with one hand. He He was an incredible guy. But he went out to India in 1973 and along the way lost two of his wives. They died and three of his children died. And he spent... Eight years out there and he had one convert. Now you might say to yourself, He's a rubbish missionary. (laughs) If he's got if he's got one convert in eight years, you should really you should really come home. And yet what he ended up doing, I don't know if his preaching was just no good or what or, or what it was, and he spent time out there and he got into working amongst the poor and destitute. And he started to challenge social circumstances. So he we went out there with God's word in one hand, but he also went out there with a heart and a compassion for the people. And he put an end to what you call sati. And I think I'm saying that right. There was a practice within Hinduism where when the, when the fella in the relationship died, out of respect for him, the wife would jump on the funeral pyre and take her own life. And he came across this and he said, that's just not, that's just not right. We have to challenge this. He challenged this practice of infant... Uh, murder I guess people if you had too many kids you would just kill one of them off and he got stuck into the education system and he worked and he worked and he worked so he had the Bible in one hand and he's one convert to his credit after 8 years but he went in with a heart of compassion in India today there are 27 million Christians Um, I'm reliably informed this was by an Indian Bible student that their Bible schools are better than ours And if they're not better than ours, then they're fuller than ours. And the missionaries that we send and that they send, they outnumber us by a lot. And in fact, actually, we can expect to receive more and more Indian missionaries into our country. His legacy, though he only got one convert in his first eight years, born out of this compassion he had for the poor, means there are now, and it's not just all his work, there were other missionaries in India, that there are 27 million million Christians in India today. And it started with a guy who didn't seem to do that well, but was just full of compassion. I think sometimes as Christians, as church-going people, we separate these two works, don't we? We separate compassion and evangelism. We say these are two different things that we do. Sometimes we do evangelism, we take out the word, we do an activity, and then at the end we give a short talk, that sort of thing. And then other times we think, right, we're going to do a social action, and we're going to go and help somebody who has not got enough food. And we separate these two things. And I think that's okay. I think all churches do that. But I think the Bible doesn't seem to do it as much as we do. Often when you read the Bible and you read the New Testament text, these twin arms of social action, care, compassion, and evangelism, they're actually going out at the same time. Read about most of the times when Jesus does anything, it's prefixed by this line, filled with compassion, he And the the event that we read about, the life-changing moment that we read about, or the healing that we read about, starts with Jesus being filled with compassion. And he just stops. And he changes his direction. Or he does something else. Think about when he sent the disciples out. He sent them out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Think about the early church, how it grew It grew and it grew and it grew and it fed on the word, but also at the same time, we read about people that shared everything. It was a church that was full of the poor and the sick. Something to think about, I think, as we think about strategy and we think about what our Christian lives look like and we think about how we present the gospel. Essentially, I think when we present the gospel, we are trying to tell people about God's grace. And sometimes there's no better way to tell somebody about God's grace and to give them the food that you've got or the jumper that you've got spare. A few applications for us to think about. Bad things start when our judgment is clouded by sin. When our moral compass starts from the wrong place, then bad things can happen. Think about when you have a bad day. Just think about what happens when you're having a bad day. Have you, ever, have you ever come home to find your partner eating a lot of chocolate cake? This is. I'm not telling it. this is a story about Jude. I've realized I've done that terrible thing again. You come home to find your partner eating a load of chocolate cake and they'll just say, yeah, I've had a bad day. And actually they've been eating well and brilliantly well for six months and all of a sudden they're having a bad day and all of a sudden everything goes out the window. The whole parameters have changed. It all goes out the window because you're having a bad day. This is not a story about Jude. This is a hypothetical story. <laughs> and, and the moral goalposts just move. We're having a bad day. I'm driving along in the car, and I'm having a bad day. And if I'm having a good day, the person that cuts me up, I'm like, oh, well, the radio's good, the sun's out, I'm quite happy. If I'm having a bad day, I might say something else to them as they undercut me in the car. And my moral compass just jumps massively to one side. And this is what sin does, and those are mild examples, but this happened to us all. When sin moves the moral goalposts of our life, when we stop starting with God and we start with our own moral goalposts, then bad things happen conversely, good things start with compassion. We can have all the plans we like in the world. But the more I read the Bible, the more I see that born out of compassion, good things happen. Let's start some works just because we've got the good God in us and we're changed by the story of Jesus. And out of compassion, we start something. Finally, just to close, if you could pop the last um, slide on that, that'd be great. The, The end of the story and... Um, These are big chapters in Luke, and there's lots that we've missed, and lots that, uh, in my weakness, we've overlooked. But I want to pull things together. Uh, Just at verse 19, I'll read it out to you. It's how the story culminates, and I think it's evidence that we can trust John, because all these challenges he throws at everybody else, he practices for himself. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John ended up confronting Herod about his affair. And uh, there's a a couple of ways you could look at this, but I'd like to think of it like this. He's, He's preparing the way for the king. He's preparing the way for King Jesus, and he bumps into this other king, Herod, who's indulging in incest and thinking he's getting away with it. And he says to king herod this is not what being a king looks like and he said all this stuff to the jews and he thinks all right i've got to back this up and he says it to herod and he says this is not what being a king looks like king jesus is coming that's what being a king looks like you can't behave like this and what happens to john the baptist do you know the story we know what happens don't we might not happen right away but it's coming and he lives with the consequences He throws this challenge out to the people and then he's able to back it up we don't read much more about John the Baptist in Luke's gospel the bits that we've missed out I will cover in a moment John can present this story to us he can challenge these people in this way because he recognised who Jesus was he says of him I'm not fit to untie this guy's sandals when Jesus comes along, he says of him, When Jesus asks for baptism, I'm not fit to baptize you. What he sees is that he recognizes the worth of Jesus. And I could stand here and flounder for another 20 hours and I will not be able to say anything more important to you than that. To recognize the worth of Jesus is a treasure, a life changing treasure. The King is coming. If this were a Pentecostal church, you would be jumping up and down right now. I I will take it that you're encouraged. The king is coming. I'm certain he's coming. We should be certain he's coming. Are you prepared for him to come?